Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Today, we're talking to Oklahoma Watch reporter Trevor Brown, who just finished a story about voting rights in Oklahoma, and he uncovered a surprising trend. Trevor, first, can you tell us what lawmakers did this year regarding election laws? Sure. You know, as of course, as you remember, after the presidential election, there were a lot of Republicans across the country looking to restrict voting laws. What happened in Oklahoma was actually the opposite. We expanded some of our laws. Namely, we added a one extra day for early voting. That was really the only huge um, voting change that people could probably really see from their day-to-day lives, but we definitely went a different way than many other states. And how does that compare to some of those other states? And I'm, I'm thinking of Texas in particular. What have they done? Sure, yeah. There is um, an interim study last week where um, some people presented some stats that there were more election-related bills across the country than ever before. Um, but some of the more restrictive ones came in Republican-led states. You mentioned Texas. Their governor just signed a bill that did away with a lot of things that they had that we don't have, such as 24, 24-7 voting, drop boxes, drive-through voting, and they also made it a little harder to vote by mail and added some other things that a lot of voting advocates were not happy about. You know, we're also just seeing recently um, some activity in, in other states, including California, trying to uh, come up with some new voting restrictions. What are the chances that we see more restrictions uh, make their way through bills in the legislature next year? So I talked with some lawmakers, and they still say it's still early to tell whether there'd be a lot of anti-voting bills or bills to expand it. But right now, it looks like the trend is looking at to make it more easier for people to vote. Um, things like making it easier for absentee. There's probably going to be another push to, again, extend voting times, but it's unclear if there will be support for that. There, There's a bill uh, in Congress right now, HB1, that would overhaul voting laws across the country. And what what's happening with that law, and how is that sitting with Oklahoma lawmakers? Yeah, so HB1 was a big issue earlier in this year. Uh, the U.S. House passed it, actually, and now it's been sitting in the Senate, and its prospects do not look good. For a lot of people in Oklahoma, that's good news. A lot of Republicans, as well as the election secretary, said it would be costly. Um, it would kind of interfere with some of the existing state laws, and they weren't happy about the federal um, officials mandating how we run our elections. One lawmaker, Representative Fugate, is planning to push a bill again this year that would offer a chance for, if a voter had their absentee ballot rejected, to have it remedied. You know, they would have an opportunity to fix any errors, you know, if they didn't sign it properly. Right now, we don't have a process for that. But through this law, there would be kind of a a process where if someone's vote seemingly got thrown out, that could be fixed later on. Thanks, Trevor. Listeners can read all the details about voting rights in Oklahoma in Trevor's story, which is available at oklahomawatch.org. 
Paul Money's dug into a story this week in South Central Oklahoma, where some residents want the Department of Mines to revoke permits they just issued and start the process from scratch. Paul, what's going on with aggregate mines in South Central Oklahoma? And what are the residents there mad about? Well, there's, there's aggregate mining going on all over the state, but by far the largest concentration of rock quarries uh, getting permits has been in the south central part of the state. Uh, now, some of these operations use as much water as the whole city of Ada does in a year, for example. And that can mean less water, water for other uses like agriculture and recreation. Now, what this group of landowners are mad about is an apparent conflict of interest between a hearing officer working on behalf of the agency and an attorney that represents mining companies that wants permits. Now, these two individuals, John Sheridan, the hearing officer, and Elizabeth Nichols, used to be married and have a daughter together. But nobody at the agency ever told the people who spoke out against the permits that, that, about that prior relationship. The agency kept assigning the pair to these informal hearings, which is the first step in the permitting process. Oklahoma's Department of Mines it hasn't really been a controversial agency, has it? Not really, at least not until recently. It's a, it's a small agency with about 30 employees and an annual budget of about $3.8 million. It's got a director, and its operations are overseen by a nine-member board, which is the Oklahoma Mining Commission. And the agency just normally kind of issues permits, inspects mines, and promotes safety in both coal mining and in aggregate mining. Now, there's a little more to this than just a failure to disclose their relationship, right? Haven't there been some legal problems, too? That's right, Ted. Uh, It turns out the hearing officer is actually a disbarred attorney. Um, He gave up his law license in 2004. Uh, after being accused of misappropriating some client trust funds. Uh, the Department of Mines has paid him about $19,000 for his services as a hearing officer since 2015. But uh, unfortunately, the agency didn't respond to my questions about why it had him under contract and how many other hearing officers it has. Okay, so it, part of that, you were reporting that, that Nichols was a hearing officer. He was involved in these informal conferences, as they're called, right? So uh, is that a conflict? Well, that's definitely what the landowners think and, you know, the group of concerned residents um, and the citizens to protect Arbuckle Simpson Aquifer. Uh, they, they just want the agency to basically go back, redo this whole process again with these permits, uh, start with informal hearings, basically taking another look with uh, what they claim were due process rights were be in place rather than it was before. Okay. So um, part of the story, as you reported it, was that the federal government cut about 15% of the money that normally would come to the agency, and that prompted uh, Governor Sitt to, to sue Washington. How does that tie into this conflict, and what other fallout, if any, might we see from this controversy? That's right. It's just uh, kind of more fallout from the McGirt decision, which obviously affected things on Indian land uh, from the Supreme Court last year. Now, this specifically, uh, on the aggregate side, what they call the non-coal side um, in the Department of Mines, that's not affected by what the state administration is suing over. But basically what happened last or early this year was the Interior Department basically said, we're going to do jurisdiction over the coal mining part on Indian lands, and sorry, Department of Mines, you're not going to be involved anymore. Uh, they did that rather suddenly and also yanked some about $600,000 in grant funds that funds were already supposed to come into the state and help pay for operations, safety, reclamation projects, and stuff like that. So now, obviously, the state administration has taken the feds to, uh, to court, and they're claiming it's a, it was an overreach of the Booker decision, which is they claim it's just criminal in nature. Wow, so a lot of controversy uh, surrounding some mines and an agency that, that normally is pretty quiet, right? We haven't seen this before. What, how does all this get resolved in a, in a couple of sentences? Well, I think uh, the next step is 
possibly, um, depending, this, this group may file lawsuits on this. Uh, they've kind of maybe given an indication to the department that's already, the, and that's one of the reasons why they haven't commented officially on this to me, because they said we've, we've been threatened litigation. That hasn't been filed yet, maybe filed soon. Thanks, Paul. Listeners can read the full story at oklahomawatch.org. I'm Oklahoma Watch Executive Director Ted Struley. Each week, we bring you closer to one of our investigations through a conversation with one of our reporters. Keaton Ross covers criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch, and his latest investigation revealed that Oklahoma can be a particularly difficult place to get a wrongful conviction overturned. Keaton, tell us the story of Antonio Ellis. In January 1999, Antonio Ellis was a 17-year-old high school student at Putnam City. Um, He got good grades. He was on the football team. Um, That all stopped. uh, He was accused of murdering uh, Christopher David Terry, a 26-year-old private school teacher at a car wash near his apartment complex. Uh, Two and a half years later, he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Primary evidence against Ellis was testimony from another 17-year-old, Michael Lang, uh, the judge in the case actually acknowledged that the prosecution's case was weak outside of Lang's testimony, um, but ultimately the judge at sentencing, at sentencing said uh, he believed Lang and the jury. Going back to 2018, uh, nearly 20 years after his conviction, uh, Lang contacted the National Innocence Project and recanted the original testimony, uh, saying police coerced him and Lang was innocent. The Oklahoma Innocence Project then filed a post-conviction relief appeal based on the recantation, uh, but a judge denied it, questioning uh, the time that elapsed and the unreliable nature of witness testimony. Uh, The Innocence Project is now appealing the most recent ruling. Anytime uh, someone's wrongfully convicted, it just, it, it offends just about everybody's sense of justice and fair play. And it seems as though if an error is made, we'd want to correct it as, as swiftly as possible. What makes it difficult to get a wrongful conviction overturned in Oklahoma? Yeah, a, a big hurdle are what legal expert, experts call procedural bars. Um, basically, issues, uh, legal issues that a prisoner knows about need, need to be raised on the first direct appeal immediately after they're convicted. Um, if a prisoner tries to bring up something they had knowledge of previously, uh, like an alibi that they're uh, defense attorney failed to present, uh, the court will likely reject that on a post-conviction appeal. Um, the idea is the court doesn't want to keep hearing the same arguments over and over again, and there needs to be some sense of finality in the justice system. Um, but, but these procedural rules can make it really difficult to even get a hearing on a post-conviction innocence filing. Well, some states have developed uh, conviction integrity units. What, what are those, and do we have one in Oklahoma? Sure. Uh, they're essentially review boards that have the ability to investigate and remedy wrongful convictions. Um, a few are at the statewide level, but most are under uh, individual district attorney's offices, for example, Dallas County in Texas. Uh, at this point, we don't have any conviction integrity units uh, in Oklahoma at the statewide or district attorney level, um, although a Republican lawmaker that I talked to did introduce a bill last session that would have created a special death penalty conviction integrity unit under the state pardon and parole board. Uh, that bill didn't pass, but he does plan to bring it back. 
next session. Well, how would a conviction integrity unit differ from independent organizations like the one you mentioned, the National Innocence Project or the Oklahoma Innocence Project? Sure. Uh, since they're backed by a district attorney's office uh, or a state agency uh, like the attorney general, uh, they often have uh, the legal power to compel uh, certain evidence, uh, you know, evidence that's hard to get from prosecutors' offices. Um, their findings also hold significant sway in the criminal justice system. And if a, if a conviction integrity unit and defense counsel are in agreement uh, that a prisoner should be released, uh, a judge is likely uh, to, to agree with them and rule in favor. That's pretty interesting uh, stuff. Would be interesting to see what would happen here in Oklahoma if that bill passes. For more about wrongful convictions in our state, be sure to read Keaton's story at oklahomawatch.org. Oklahoma Watch is a nonprofit organization specializing in investigative journalism. You can find us on the web at oklahomawatch.org. I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch. You can find those stories on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening.